Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It's hard to believe we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We are highlighting adaptations from Season 9 over at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can purchase the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. We had a big Robin Hood series this season, looking at nine different versions on screen. Many were likely adapted from Howard Pyle's The Merry Adventures of Robin Hood, including Douglas Fairbanks in Robin Hood, The Adventures of Robin Hood, Disney's Robin Hood, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, and the 1991 Robin Hood, and Ridley Scott's Robin Hood. Robin and Marion was specifically based on the ballad, The Jest of Robin Hood. And we really don't have too much to say about Robin and the Seven Hoods. We talked Dead Ringers for our David Cronenberg series adapted from Barry Wood and Jack Geisland's novel, Twins. Have you checked out that show? You know, I haven't, but I've heard great things. Two comedies from our Steve Martin series were adaptations, Pennies from Heaven from the BBC series, and The Lonely Guy from the book by Bruce J. Friedman. The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas was part of our Colin Higgins series, adapted from the Broadway musical. Spike Lee brought us Black Klansman from Ron Stallworth's memoir. And we looked at a trio of John Le Carey adaptations, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, The Little Drummer Girl, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Plus, all three movies in our Agnieszka Holland series were based on books, Europa Europa, In Darkness, and Spore. La Caja Fall and its remake, The Birdcage, both came from Jean Poiré's original play. We also talked about Arsenic and Old Lace and Charade in our Gary Grant series. All of these were based on other material, and it is all available on our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book purchased supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations we've covered and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
20th Century Fox presents a tribute to anyone who has ever been overworked, underpaid, and pushed to the edge by an ungrateful boss. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Nine to five is over. It's time to kidnap the boss. They arrive promptly at nine, because if they're not on time, they know they'll get the sack. But before they begin the daily grind, the boss takes his cup black. They remember each date, make sure he's not late, and keep everything organized. They reserve tables for brunch or a three martini lunch while they dine on burgers and fries. This road. They listen to all his problems. They do their best to please. And even if they run the show, he gets paid for their ideas. Great work. And so long as he's alive, from nine to five, they'll take it all they can. But what will go on when the light finally dawns that it's time to get back at that man? Now, I know you've never seen it before. You've never even heard of it. This is the first time you've ever heard of 9 to 5. It's a cultural yes, no. anomaly. The cultural, like, wow, what was going on in 1980? Yeah. I thought I had seen this movie. I Wait a minute. Straight up. Are you telling me I was joking? Like, you haven't seen this movie? You hadn't? No, I, I knew what the movie was, and I had seen scenes. Like, this is definitely something I was around when my mom probably rented it or something. And I saw scenes, particularly stuff with Dabney Coleman being, uh, you know, uh, tied up, kidnapped, all that sort of stuff. Like, those are things that I remember. Okay. Uh, but the film itself, that's I was unfortunate. Like, no, I, I definitely hadn't seen this before. Uh, so it was pretty new to me, which was great. Was it? I like, Tell I like me how great it was. I like new experiences, especially when they're like this, because the the comedy worked really well. It was, I I think, very sharp uh, for its time. I think the the way the script was constructed was really clever. I had uh, just endless fun with it. The casting was impeccable. Like everything about this worked for me. It was just a just a top notch experience. I had uh, so much fun with it. Oh, I'm relieved to hear you say that because sometimes your enthusiasm is subdued enough that I'm not sure where the quibbles are going to come in. And for me, this movie is super delightful. I am thrilled that it it holds up. And in fact, I think that is the saddest commentary I can make on this movie in particular, given what it's about, is that, my God, it really holds up. It doesn't feel I, I mean, the areas that feel dated are generally like technological Right. And, and <laughs> like copy machines. <laughs> like, right. Like culturally uh, and, you know, cords on phones. Like there are gags that rely on cords that don't that aren't connected to phones. And so those are some things that don't don't hold up. But culturally, this movie is still whip smart. Uh, the humor does not for me, the humor doesn't get get in the way of the message. In fact, I think the humor is gentle enough that uh, it allows a wider range uh, of of audience to adapt to it. What do you think? Well, that was a big, uh, I think, a pleasant surprise for the the filmmakers at the time when they made this and and released it because they kind of knew that there would be 
an audience with secretaries and working women who were kind of in this situation who could really identify with our three protagonists of the film. But what they weren't expecting is that they would have such a strong showing across the board of people. And they realized that largely it kind of anybody fits the bill of people who are working under somebody that you know makes them feel kind of unappreciated it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman you can be in that sort of situation and then of course there are so many elements in the film that are just so much fun that it was uh, very appealing to younger viewers too it just really kind of hit uh out of the park for everybody and it ended up working really well and like you said Sadly, it still feels pretty relevant, uh, which is amazing to to look at this film and go, gosh, everything going on in here is still struggles that people are facing. And there are shifts as to what issues are taking place. But I mean, equal pay is still an issue. And there are still a lot of, uh, you know, situations that people are dealing with, especially as the, the, you know, working world has become more corporatized and the the corporate mentality has kind of overtaken uh kind of the big boss mentality and and i think there's just a lot of situations where just people are are viewed as workhorses and so super relevant and i think the humor helps deliver the message in a way where it's allowing it to be fun and so it doesn't end up feeling preachy and i think that's really one of the sharpest things that uh, Jane Fonda and her producing partner uh, decided to do is shift it from a dramatic script early on in the in the writing process to something that was a comedy, allowing for it to be a smarter uh, way to kind of tackle the subject. Right. Because we, we have that other movie, right? We already have like what Norma Ray, you know, like we have the the other labor films. Uh, this this was an, an anomalous thing at the time. And I think to your point about Fonda that, you know, she'd said, I am super sensitive to anything that smacks of the soapbox or lecturing the audience. And uh, I, I think that's an interesting thing about this movie. I never got the the sense as I'm watching this movie that it was preaching to me, that it was trying to to teach me something overt that I'm going to walk away uh, and and be able to recite chapter and verse what this movie is is saying that is so resonant in these areas. Uh, and it, it felt like a much more uh, intimate form of comedy that these were these three women who were going through their story. And I'm bearing witness to it, not in a way that they're trying to teach me something. They're genuinely funny people who are going through genuinely uh, difficult times. Uh, in in all three areas of their lives, and uh, and and I am I'm absorbing it less than being taught lessons. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, absolutely. And I think that's why so- stories like this can be so successful. And I mean, you know, I think another thing you brought up is the whole Jane Fonda angle. She certainly wasn't a stranger to uh, projects with political uh, messages, you know, sure. I mean, coming off of coming home even just a few years before. It definitely was um, partial to kind of stronger messages. And mm-hmm. I I don't know. I just, I I think that, she is she had been an activist and and knew kind of how it worked and what would 
uh, you know, what people would listen to and what they would roll their eyes at. And I think that she decided, you know what, I've done some of those where I'm being a little mo- more overt. Let's pull this one back and and see how it how people react to it. And I think, it, you know, the numbers don't lie. I think it was uh, largely something that uh, people really clicked with and really enjoyed and appreciated. And it did end up kind of leading a movement to a certain extent. I mean, I think it was already kind of underway, but I think having a film like this as kind of an anthem with a song that, you know, was the anthem, really, I mean, it it allowed kind of for this this push to start creating some of these programs that they mention in the movie that really weren't practiced, like daycare at work or, you know, work share, uh, you know, things like that. And um, I, I think that it allowed a place for that conversation to start and actually push for change. Yeah, the the things that are that we sort of bear witness to in, in terms of the issues that these women are facing, uh, are, you know, I think that's the part that that makes the commentary on the movie sad today, 40 years later, that we're still like we witness it through a comedic lens um you know what today is straight up sexual assault i mean they end up you know wrestling one another on uh, he's wrestling over her his his come ons to to uh dorley are um you know they're they're funny in the moment because she is a strong character uh but the act itself is you know there's we've we've got two we've we've had 40 years of too much of it and stronger support networks that that are bringing more and more of these stories to light um and yeah this is uh, this is a comedy about Harvey Weinstein yeah yeah it really is and and this is you know so those stories i find those elements of the film uh challenging to watch even as i'm laughing at what they're trying to do uh and if there is ever a guy who's more made to play this role is Dabney Coleman. I mean, he's he's um, incredible at walking the line between, um, you know, being smarmy and maintaining that sort of comedic, uh, you know, antagonist uh, role in a way that that makes him still, you know, a bad guy. But I, I don't hate him. You know, I, he's a bad guy. I want him to get his comeuppance, but I'm not enraged by him. And yet. All of these Harvey Weinstein stories that have come out make it uh, make it increasingly difficult to to maintain that sensibility. Well, but I think what this film is doing well is it's keeping that comedy tone throughout, and even and not not just that, but there it's keeping the the perspective of the story. Like we are very much seeing this story told through the perspective of these three women characters, and it's it's horrible and awful that he's acting this way and it 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 shouldn't be happening um but because of the way that it's treated i i mm-hmm. think that the filmmakers are allowing it to happen because it, it's going to be answered you know yes. that's that's i think the, the the key with any story like this is if you're going to have these situations you know what are the repercussions going to be right, and right. Uh, and that's i mean that really is the foundation of the whole film anyway right you know we have these women who are all suffering at the hands of their boss for one reason or another and now they put you know they they put these fantasies to work and then the fantasies um, kind of accidentally come to life in fantastic ways so i i think that's what makes this script incredibly sharp the fact that 
we see this this uh, you know this very negative social situation happening. And it creates this, uh, you know, I mean, it's not right for them to to kill their boss. I mean, fantasizing is one thing, um, mm-hmm. but it, it leads down a darker road. And and I think that they're constantly dealing with the idea of repercussions in this film, you know, repercussions with what he's doing. They're going to get him. And I think Lily Tomlin starts when she doesn't get the the promotion and she's complaining to him about this other guy who's gotten it and she's just like i want respect and all this stuff and and that's that kind of really sets the ball rolling that pushes us into this place where they're allowed to have these fantasies yes i I, let's talk a little bit more about how we how comeuppance is handled for him because it's handled in a number of different ways and i think really artfully in the script uh, and um makes it i think easier to handle what is, uh, uh, you know, not an explicit consequence for him, right? Um, and I, I think that actually makes it even better. It makes it even better because I'm one of those guys that I like. I like it when when bad guys get their due, right? And when I see somebody doing something bad, I want to know that it's going to come around and it's going to bite him, and he's going to get his due. He's going to lose a hand. <laughs> I, I want to feel like there has been there. There have been just desserts paid. And in this movie, there aren't really just desserts paid. Like if you look at the words on the page, he is he's he's promoted to a place he doesn't want to go. And he gets away with his crime. Yes, that he had been yes. committing in the company. <laughs> Absolutely. He gets away with the crime. He gets away with the crime. He's obviously and, and at, at the end, he is uh, he's taken away. Right, He's taken away and the elevator doors close as the boss is telling him, uh, you know, I don't take no for an answer. You're going to go to Brazil and it's going to be you're going to you know, I need a guy like you in Brazil for the next couple of years. And then the post credit or the, the pre credits uh, sequence at the end, we find out that he's actually been abducted by a Brazilian jungle tribe and never heard from again, which is level one comeuppance, right? He has, this is the karmic comeuppance. It's not the explicit comeuppance. Something happened to him and and karmically he was, he he was made off with. The thing that I actually love so much is actually the second level just desserts, which is that all of the, the women's ideas were better than his. And when he comes back, he's about to say, oh, you know, this is my floor. I am going to take all of these changes that you've made, all of the flex time and the daycare and repainting everything and uh, everything you've done, you know, that is positive uh, from your perspective. I'm going to undo it because I'm the boss. And then mm-hmm. the boss comes in and the whole reason he's taken away is because the the women's ideas were were in fact better than his own and that is the more satisfying of all the the things that that ha- happen is that he is removed from the picture in a way that um that allows their ideas to flourish the challenge that i have is that if i put myself in their shoes i i want them to be paid off in a more explicit way sure. I, I and that's just me and just my like my deep need for that sort of retributive you know, my love of John Wick. I need John Wick and the dog in this movie to finish Dabney <laughs> Coleman. Uh, but, but I so all of that is a preamble to ask you, do you think they they sort of soft pedal the, the consequences for Dabney Coleman after uh, how awful he has been to these women all along? It, you know, that's it's a it's a tricky question, because uh, let's also um, keep in mind that they kidnap him and keep him locked up 
uh, for six weeks. Granted, it's in his own house. Yeah. But he he is uh, they they're also, you know, committing a crime in order to try to outplay him. Right. So it's there's a level of that that's going on. And I I feel that um, it's I think that the script is actually really smart in the way that it delivers the the resolution because it ends up being a resolution that sadly at the time allows the the idiot man who's the boss to get away with everything that he's doing but it puts him in a situation now where unfortunately he is out of the picture and he's not going to be in a situation to be able to do anything to them anymore or at least for three years while he's gone um, right. in context of the story. And it puts them in a place where uh, where he had told the head that, you know, that uh, this woman right here, Violet, is my right-hand person, and she's the one who kind of knows everything that's going on and and ends up kind of creating a situation inadvertently where likely Violet is now going to be kind of kept in a situation where she is now able to kind of fill in the gap. And so while they're not necessarily getting recognized for everything that they did uh, in the film, they have now elevated themselves to a position of of power behind the scenes, more or less, that is going to allow them to kind of continue moving forward in a more positive way. So it's, it is a softer... Uh, uh, climax, and it's a it's a it's a softer resolution that we have here. But I think, in context of the story that we have here, with business women trying to make names for themselves, it ended up being kind of a fairly smart ending. And I thought it was it was just kind of without being just kind of maybe what Jane Fonda was trying to avoid, you know, where it would be like. Hey, you really are smart. Why don't you run things now? And it would have been a little too much of that kind of yay, women can do it too, as opposed to the way that we get it. I I don't think so much that hand wavy women are smart too. I think the movie demonstrates uh, uh, quite clearly that women are incredibly smart and they dominate this movie and more women is better. Um, I, what I don't think that this movie does thoroughly and i question whether another take on this movie uh would have to to address this differently is the implicit versus explicit um you know shunning of the boss right what we have here is the implicit and this is the danger of i think the personal movie telling the personal story so successfully in a comedic way uh to you know to be sort of a little bit light-handed based on the culture at the time what we were dealing with in 1980 and the fact that there very much was a, a much more resonant sort of old boys club. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I don't think having an explicit finger wagging Coleman's character is going to be punished because what he did is wrong. At no point do they say in this movie what he did is wrong and he should be punished for it. And I think this movie today, had, if it if it were remade, it would likely have to have an explicit what he did was wrong 
and he's going to be punished for it. And I, I couldn't help but think if I just finished up uh, season one of The Morning Show, and The Morning Show, you know, it very much deals with me too in a dramatic kind of soap opera fashion. Uh, the, I found the final episode of The Morning Show enormously satisfying, and I was grief stricken by it. Like, they just played it very, very well. And in this movie, I think they are in this series, I think they have a much more sort of wearing wear it on its sleeve what you did is wrong and the repercussions are extensive and dues will be paid. There is not as much of a sense of that in this movie. And I wonder, in, even in a comedy, if, uh, you know, what we're seeing right now is a swell of um, dues must be paid stories. Um, I, I just don't I don't think that this that nine to five could be made this way again. Well, you know what could have helped the ending of this? And I, I think given a little more time, I think Higgins probably could have hit on it is we have the uh, the scene, which I thought was actually real uh, kind of clever to kind of have as the as the bottom point of our act three when, uh, you know, uh, the boss, Dabney Coleman, uh, his character has escaped his his uh, where he's been kind of tied up and has fixed the the problem that they were investigating trying to prove that he was basically um you know stealing from the company and kind of creating right. this whole shell account with this, whatever it was um if what what would have been a smart little twist is to have the film play the way that it does where the boss comes in and and all of this stuff happens and and then just as you know the boss is giving him the job in brazil and all this sort of stuff like something is delivered you know some key piece of evidence is delivered that they look at and go what is this and it it turns into that moment that uh, you know, the the head honcho, you know, the Sterling Hayden character of our company now all of a sudden has the evidence and sees that Dabney Coleman was, in fact, you know, stealing money from the company. And that would be kind of that last little twist that all of a sudden would kind of shift everything where, um, you know, they got the women got elevated to their new position. They got their boss out of the picture. And lo and behold, it turns out that the evidence has turned up. He's guilty. And now he's going to jail. Like that would have been kind of maybe a more successful way to kind of deal with that. Establish a sense of criminality that still doesn't necessarily deal with the fact that he's, you know, the the sexism and the, you know, all the other issues that he's so overtly deals with but it, but it does deal with the fact that he is a bad guy and dues will yeah. be paid yeah right yeah um you know i i feel like i i uh steamrolled over a big question which we have been dealing with each and every week which i think is really good which is the higgin higginsness the higginsness <laughs> what did you want to lobby for a a Higgin, an auteur Higginish? theory uh the higginality <laughs> of the <Higginality. film>? <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's, a, it's like Higgins. higginopia <laughs> we don't have an opia yet. Cor cornucopia is the Higginopia. The Higginsopia. Higginsopia. <laughs> Higginsopia. Oh, I, I, uh, none of these are winning. I, I guarantee you, this is not going to create a nationwide, uh, you know, call. I'm to, making. To... I'm making a new shirt, and all it has is Higginsopia with an extra nanana in it. Yeah. 
Uh, do you, is this the kiddies a, is will this be wearing a, it at school? Everyone will be talking about it. They won't even know what it is. It'll just be the new, the new <laughs> word on the playground. That's right. <laughs> uh, is this a Colin Higgins movie? That's a great question. Um, this is the second film he's directed, the fourth that he has written in some form. Uh, and I feel that now that we're at this point in his career, it's his comedy style, I think, it really shines through. You know, the the style that he has of, of uh, you know, just kind of playing with just kind of all of the comedy elements in the kind of the world of his stories, allowing it to uh, have silly moments and kind of making it a little over the top and big and not necessarily what would typically be, I guess, expected and, and making it feel very real and making the people feel extremely real. And while we didn't necessarily see much in uh, foul play or silver streak, as far as kind of him kind of tackling some more interesting issues, I guess silver streak with the pairing of the two, but I don't know if that's really, he wasn't necessarily tackling that, but uh, I think you're definitely seeing from Harold Maude to this, a sense of Colin Higgins saying, you know what, there are interesting situations going on in our world, and we can create stories from these unique situations, whether it's a strange relationship and a fascination with suicide, or, you know, women in the workplace, and, and you know, what sort of fantasies these secretaries might have in killing their boss. I think that it definitely, I feel like there is a comedy style that Colin Higgins has definitely been developing over these last four films. On that point, I think it's important that we revisit our favorite segment, which is the Higginsopia uh, trope library. <laughs> because that's, uh, that has been trope Higgins. <laughs> Colin's yes. trope corner. Uh, this, at least our conversation about his films, uh, seemed to have been, uh, sort of defined by a discussion of the tropes that we've seen either heavily leaned on in this movie or, uh, in, in some cases invented by his movies. Um, what did you see in here that, that felt tropey? There were a few, uh, that, that definitely fit in comedy tropes. I don't know if he necessarily created these ones, but that's another, I think, element of kind of the Colin Higgins humor style is playing with the tropes that are out there and allowing them to just kind of breathe, but in fun ways. In this one, we've got the mixing up the stiff trope. This one just doesn't feel like an invention to me. This feels like something the Marx Brothers did. I I can't put my fingers on what it did or what it was. But this one, uh, I think, was great. And what I love about it, and in our notes, I called this, what did I call this? A treatise on the balance of seriousness and silliness in film. Like, this movie is (laughs) a a course in that. Because the sequence we're talking about here, mixing up the stiff, the the, uh, women understand that they, or they misunderstand, they think that they accidentally fed rat poison to the boss. The boss is taken off in a an ambulance. He uh, actually had hit his head and he is very frugal. There is, uh, I think, a hint of a stab at healthcare and the healthcare uh, <laughs> impending healthcare crisis as he uh, assaults the doctor and says, I know you guys, I'm not going to get roped up in your uh, charges for, you know, a couple of x-rays. And he storms out. And so 
Lily Tomlin's character goes in and steals the wrong body that they think is already dead. So the body, they steal the body, they race around town with the body, they think they're being chased by the cops. It's all very, very confusing uh, and and funny. To me, that level of silliness, it doesn't go too far. It's the right level of silliness for the for the rest of the movie. It doesn't sort of exceed the range of expected dopiness. It does not. It works perfectly. And I think it's because of the reactions. It's the way that they play it. And that's, I think, why this comedy works so well. They're not playing it. Uh, they're not playing the comedy specifically to be funny. Right. They're just playing it straight. And it just happens to be written funny. And yes. because of that, it works really well. And some of their lines in this whole course of it, when they realize when you have... <laughs> Of uh, Dora Lee looking in the trunk, <laughs> she's just like, uh, "Judy, do you want to come take a look at this?" <laughs> <You know? laughs> and just like as they realize, and they're like just laying into vital, like, "How yeah. could you?" you know, it, just, it works so well because yeah, really uh, because of all of that, and the fact that it ends with the punchline when they get the, the body back to the hospital and they they put it in a wheelchair and park it in a bathroom and you get the lady who's working there we got another stiff in the job <laughs> <laughs> I mean what a great way to punctuate that one oh it's perfect you know I actually thought you were gonna do the the line which I which feels like a trope in a trope when uh, they're worried about the body and it's Dora Lee who gets to say it's been taken care of and then right. hard cut to the to the stiff in the bathroom right. uh, which i think is just uh it's just perfect uh that it's that little great. bit yeah so great uh what's the next uh trope you uncovered you un- you revealed we, right we have the mysterious figure lurking outside we get this outside when when uh, Judy Jane Fonda's character is babysitting uh, Franklin uh, or Frank at his house. That's Dabney Coleman, and uh, and there's a mysterious figure lurking outside, and we don't know who it is. We don't know who's watching her. As it turns out, it is her ex husband, and that leads into a fantastic scene all about M and M's, which was really great. <laughs> And um, but again, it it is that trope. Who it is, who is this mysterious figure that is following her and and watching her from outside? I think this scene. I'm glad you have this scene uh, that you picked this scene because I think this scene highlights something we talked about earlier, which is uh, that Jane Fonda is no stranger to position films, and she has made this. She she chose to make this film in a way that wasn't overtly hand wavy, and cast herself as the wide eyed sort of ingenue new character right the the uh in in this case the fish out of water coming out of uh having been married for 12 years uh to a guy who um uh you know had an affair ran off with his secretary and she gets a job as a secretary uh and then she becomes the one who gets giddy and nervous about saying all of the dirty words and i find that an amazing turn of casting uh i think you could have just as easily given that part to uh dolly parton because she plays the wide-eyed uh bit incredibly well uh and i but but i think uh i I think fonda is top of her game you know this this scene also ends up giving her the chance to to uh, you know kind of stand up for herself and so i can see why this is a role that you know she would relish because she does get to tell her husband off and this is the scene where you get that uh you know that uh, 
you know, the way that he views the situation is like, well, I was going to ask you back and all this sort of stuff. And, and, uh, you know, and he gets, um, on, on her case, the whole double standards for sleeping with her boss or presumably, even though she's Mm not, um, and she's just like, you were sleeping with your secretary. And so it allowed for a lot of that stuff to come out. And so I think I can see why, Fonda would be, you know, excited about playing this part with this particular scene in mind. Um, Okay, and we get the wife. Ah, yes, the old, uh, the wife's home early trope. Yeah. Yeah, and in this case, it uh, it works well for the the way that the uh, finale of the film needs to play. And it, uh, it, you know, it kind of created a, a fun little situation that I think worked because uh it it was a it was a tricky moment because i was like well if they're all kind of taking turns babysitting him how do they not know and it's three days now that the wife has come home yeah so there's a little something in there that i think could have been a little cleaner but um still yeah that he was somehow uh hiding the fact that he was free i mean correct me if i'm wrong but they're plan had been the whole time they were taking turns kind of rotating to babysit him while he was tied up right yeah but they weren't in the room all the time right so the way i read it they weren't in the room but i mean if if the wife comes home and they're in the house i would assume that they would have realized that and if it is as as uh as uh, dora lee says you know he's been out for three days and, you know, that gave him the time he needed to kind of put his affairs in order as far as the the um, uh, kind of the crime he'd been committing, the, the white collar crime mm-hmm. um, to kind of clean that up. Um, it's just it was an odd thing to say, OK, well, three days. What were you three doing? Because you weren't you babysitting him. Yeah, right. Taking taking turns. Not well. Um, the I think a lot of this, that particular scene or sequence works because of Marion Mercer playing the wife, Missy Hart, who is, I, I know her as so funny, uh, but I think that's, again, because of my age. She's been in a lot of stuff that wasn't funny, as far as I know, but I haven't seen it. I have seen It's a Living, and that was a comedy show. And it was from 1980 to 1989. And that's just what I know her from. But I know her from that very, very well. Did you do you know her? I uh, I mean, looking through her credits, uh, you know, I mean, there's little things here and there that I likely saw her in, like an ABC, ABC after school special. She was in a couple episodes of Benson. Um you know, she was in the uh, the movie, um, Oh God, Book Two. I know I saw that. <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Yep. So, I mean, you know, there were things that I saw her in, but I, I, I don't think it was enough to really lock her in my brain. But her face is familiar. I'm trying to figure out. I can't remember. Was It's a Living a spinoff of something else? The piano player, Sonny, was he off of something else? Did it get spun off? This was kind of the era where there were all the shows were spinoffs of one another. And uh, I, I can't quite remember. Maybe that was he, he was a piano player for a, a restaurant at the top of the world. And and all there's a bevy of waitresses. And anyway, go watch It's a Living. I'm going to find it. Nick at night. Yeah. You're a latchkey kid, right? You come home, everybody's yeah. working. You come yeah. home, you're doing your thing. You're watching It's a Living. 
and watch probably, Nickelodeon. I was yeah, probably watching Leave It to Beaver on Nickelodeon. Leave Not, It to Beaver. Yeah. Eight is enough. Oh yeah. Did you watch a little Eight is Enough? Hmm. Totally. This was a great talk. That's where I learned cigarettes were bad. <laughs> <laughs> But in this movie, we learn drugs are okay when you get a joint rolled by your son. Uh, let's talk about Lily, Lily Tomlin and marijuana abuse. <laughs> you know what was great about this movie? I mean, I've never been a pot smoker, but I, I don't have anything wrong with, uh, you know, people who want to smoke pot. I think it's yeah. fine. Um, I... Um, I like that this some movie of my kind best of, friends are pot smokers. Some of my best friends. I like that this movie is just like, hey, three working women, they're gonna light up a joint. And you know, in 1980, I'm like, that was probably you know, pretty big. And, that was big. Yes, it was big. Yeah, and so I think that it allowed things to just. I don't know. I, I feel like it's the a normalizing sort of thing, just to allow people to just, uh, you know enjoy themselves and it's you know just have have fun uh getting high and and having these whacked out fantasies about killing your boss well we should talk about that in a minute but i i do want to talk about the the son and just their relationship because i think that highlights that scene i think is so perfect it's an onion of perfection first of all she is installing a new garage door overhead garage door motor and that is a uh that is a big project and she demonstrates just how capable and savvy she is at doing these kinds of home projects she doesn't need anything else her son is literally holding the ladder and trying to get her to smoke a joint um she succeeds at it she makes it go up and down and then she says you know what slip the joint in my purse right she finally gives in after saying no i don't do that i don't do that i think it also it it, that moment demonstrates the uh frankly that she is is uh, she's a parent who picks her battles, right? Like she picks the things. She has four kids. She's raising them by herself and she picks the battles that she needs to fight as a parent. And uh, I think that modernizes the view of parenting, right? That this is that she is facing a very hard thing that uh, and and it's changing the definition of what family means. Uh, And we get to see that all wrapped up in this little this little piece. I think it's it's quite smart. That paired with the conversation that she has with her boss when he uh, when she finds out that the other guy got the job and yes. she's you know, it's just like, you know, you know, why? And he's like, well, for one, he has a college degree. And she's like, I was here working, building my cred the whole time mm-hmm. he was off getting a degree. And then he's like, well, he also is raising a family. And she's like, and I I'm raising a family, too. Right. And it's like these are things that that he's not seeing, but she is struggling and making ends meet just as much as anyone else. And then it comes out, it's like, well, he's the guy and they want a guy in the part. And that's really kind of, you know, the the state of things. And I think it was just, I don't know, I, I think all of that paired together speaks to how much some people just really unfortunately have to struggle unfairly because of the way that their situation, um, you know, is creating. And it's just, it's very frustrating. The trio, just them together. I think they're really, really good, Andy. You know, there are uh, a lot of great cinema duos. Um, yeah. I don't know how many fantastic and perfect cinema trios there are, but this has to be one of them. Is the three I, amigos, are they as good as these three? They're up there. They're, they're up, up there. there. <laughs> I mean, that's just, uh, you know, uh, for in, in <laughs> I, I'd say this is a, definitely a smarter trio, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> 
but but I, in terms of just just building a a, a three way relationship between these women who didn't really know or appreciate one another and or both, uh, and doing so in a way, bringing them together in a way that is uh, believable and funny and authentic in a way that I want to see how the three of them move forward together. I think this movie does it uh, better than most. Yeah, and I'm going to use that real quick to just talk about how this film happened. Jane Fonda, um, you know, she kind of had, uh, as you alluded to, kind of had the idea of doing a story about this and uh, with her producing partner, uh, Bruce Gilbert, and initially wanted to do kind of a dramatic story about it. She saw... Lily Tomlin's one-woman show and was like, oh, she would be perfect. And while she was thinking about that, she got in her car and turned on the radio and she heard um, Dolly Parton singing, I think it was Two Doors Down, and she got the idea, oh, what about Lily, Dolly, and me as a trio in this uh, in this drama? And so she hired Patricia Resnick to write the script and wrote a dramatic script but then realized it needed to not go that route and and shifted. Uh, and that's when they brought in Colin Higgins to rewrite the script and direct it and uh, and kind of bring that comedy. But one of the key things that they wanted to make sure that Colin did when he wrote, reworked the script is gave each of these three women a real meaty part. They They wanted to make sure that the each of the characters were really fleshed out and built their relationship. And I think that is a sign that Colin Higgins really does do with his scripts is create really honest, real characters, uh, whether it's, you know, Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase or uh, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor or going all the way back to Harold Maude or these three, he is creating really real characters. And the fact that you end up getting these three actresses who just happened to inhabit their roles so perfectly and connect to each other in such a just beautifully honest ways, it just, I mean, it was just a, a, a perfection bringing these three together to create uh, the core of this film. Well, and I, I think being able to use the, you know, you already mentioned the the reveries, right? The the sort of fantasy sequences. Right. To use those as a way to give each of them agency in their relationship with the boss. Like we've already seen kind of what they look like at work, but to see how they to, to give us a sense inside their heads uh and see how they think about their boss in their in their dark times, uh, I think is <laughs> is particularly strong. Dolly Parton's first film. Yes. Out of the gate. Wow. Uh, what a, a screen presence this woman has. Just just so much fun to watch. So honest and charismatic and just, just a joy to watch. And I can see why she got so much adoration and praise for this film. Because, I mean, just, <laughs> just she really blew me away. Like, I don't think I'd ever actually seen a film with Dolly Parton. I just always you know, grew up knowing about her. Um, but now, having finally seen this, I'm like, ah, oh, now I get it. <laughs> She was really, really great. I'm looking for, uh, yes, here we go. Roger Ebert says, <laughs> it is, he said the movie was pleasant entertainment, and I liked it despite its uneven qualities and a plot that's almost too preposterous for the material. But of Dolly Parton, he says, she's a natural-born movie star who contained so much energy, so much life, and unstudied natural exuberance that watching her do 
anything in this movie is a pleasure. Okay, now you're making him sound like a perv. <laughs> Which is exactly what my Way wife to read said. Into it. I read that to her and she says, well, that's Jeez. pervy. <laughs> That's oh what I said. God. I said, honey, only I am allowed to look at you that way. <laughs> <laughs> the way Roger Ebert looks at Dolly Parton. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, oh. people were quite fond of her work in this movie. She was. She was delightful and totally believable and and seemed to uh, like I, I actually one of my favorite sequences in the movie is her going to bed with her husband talking about how much grief she's going through because she doesn't understand why nobody likes her. I thought that was so sweet. So sweet. And just, I mean, when you when you hear Dolly speak about the film and you just hear her speak in general, she is such a positive, kind person anyway, mm -hmm. that it felt like so, uh, so much a part of her character to kind of have that reaction. I mean, her her human character, you know, to kind of react that way. It just it just feels so natural for her. So I really yeah, I just really connected with her. So that Dolly Parton, this was her first movie. Uh, Lily Tomlin, this was her third. This was, yeah. She hadn't done a whole lot, and she was actually really nervous about it because, uh, you know, I mean, she had uh, Nashville a few years before, which was a very much an ensemble thing, and she, um, you know, wasn't as, uh, you know, she wasn't kind of carrying it like she is here. Yeah, and. Uh, she was so nervous. And in fact, the first stuff they shot of her was all the stuff where she was interacting with all the animation. And she was so horrified by all the stuff she was doing that she told them after her first day, she's like, if you guys need to replace me, that's fine. I get it. Don't worry. Because <laughs> she was, because I mean, it's hard, like, it, you know, acting like you're with, you know, uh, cartoon birds sitting on your fingers and stuff. And she was just, you know, horrified. So she's, she said that what she had to do to really kind of get into this and make it work is she had to pretend she was a real secretary being filmed for a documentary. <laughs> That's yeah. mentally how she had to play that game in her head to kind of be the part and make it work. Sterling Hayden, uh, what fun to see him in here as uh, CSI KFC. <laughs> Some form of Colonel Sanders. <laughs> what is he doing now? It was great. I thought it was great. And Dabney Coleman, this is where um, Jane Fonda kind of saw what he could do and got him to come on to On Golden Pond as her husband. I, you know, I wanted to look at Dabney Coleman. We could talk about more Dabney Coleman movies. We should, because Dabney Coleman, like, he was such an 80s actor that uh, is such a part of my childhood. I just grew up watching the man and just pretty much uh, love seeing him on screen. Absolutely. Uh, what were the the big, what was the one with the with the cassette, video game cassette? Cloak and, and he, Dagger. Cloak and Dagger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we got to do that. And War Games. <laughs> Can we do a little duo? And the man with the one red shoe. The man with one red shoe. Andy. <laughs> Can I we knew do? I should have put that on my guilty pleasures list. We got to do these. Uh, Dragnet. Oh, man. So good. Ah, oh, okay. Tootsie. Young Doctors in Love. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> I take it back. Oh, uh, I think there is some, uh, there's some real headroom in our Dabney Coleman collection. So there you go. I'm in Definitely. favor. If you Definitely. ever want to do that, I'm in favor of it. Squeeze right. in some Dabney Coleman 80s stuff. That's right.
I, I know we're kind of getting close to uh, toward the end. I did want to call something out. At the very end of the credits, they do give thanks to uh, the working women of the National Association of Office Workers. It was a special thanks. And I was like, is that a real thing? So it turns out it's an organization that happens to be named 9 to 5. What are the odds? Yeah. It's 9 to 5, the National Association of Working Women. It's an organization that's, uh, that had been around since 1973. And uh, their whole goal was dedicating, uh, dedicated to improve working conditions and ensuring the rights of women and families in the United States. And so I was like, oh, look at that. It's a, it's a real organization, and uh, they are pushing for women's rights, and they're called 9 to 5. You Go know, figure. and it was actually a friend of Fonda's who started the organization 9 to 5. And uh, she had heard her talking and uh, says, I heard them talking about their work and they had some great stories. And I've always been attracted to those 1940s films with three female stars. And uh, that's uh, that's kind of where she got the idea to do the movie. Hmm. So the, the association came immediately came first. That is cool. I love it. Charles Fox on the music. Old Charlie. Fox. Great. Great comedy score from the 80s. It, it yeah. you know, it works really nicely. I had a great time with it. Well, it works really nicely. And, I, you know, did you find yourself thinking, this guy is using the the nine to five theme or uh, like the, the nine to five theme, the, the pop song that Dolly Parton fronts uh-huh. and the score to the movie are inextricably tied together, right? They are just... Perfect. I don't think I've ever heard those those sort of major themes from the pop song used so perfectly in the score and vice versa uh, until maybe, um, I don't know, man. Do I even want to bring up everything I do? I do it for you. (laughs) No, I take it back. Forget I said it, everybody. (laughs) Just know that this one's really good. (laughs) <laughs> I just I found myself sitting down at the piano and plunking around with some of these the the themes from the other tracks on the soundtrack and they're so good like you can take any song any track off of that track and you can weave it s- seamlessly into the theme. Well, and that speaks to also just what a great song Dolly Parton wrote. Yeah. Right. Yep. I mean, it is such an iconic song that really did become an anthem, like I said, for working, not just working women, but working people, working stiffs uh, in the 80s. You know, the whole working nine to five. And I mean, people still say it. It's, you know, iconic because of the song. It's it is just an absolute classic. It won her the best country song, best country vocal performance Grammys. Mm -hmm. Um, Number 78 on American Film Institute's 100 Years, 100 Songs. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it uh, went platinum, too. So it's one of those incredibly popular songs. And you know it's a hit because Alvin and the Chipmunks covered it. (laughs) (laughs) It would be three male squirrels. (laughs) Chipmunks! Uh, (laughs) They're chipmunks! It's in the title! (laughs) How did... uh, So I I know that uh, the... Sequel follow-up reboot has been talked about for decades. Are we ever going to get it? Colin Higgins uh, had started developing one with Universal, 
it uh, it kind of um, at, at the time Dolly Parton was really excited about it. Jane Fonda wasn't really excited. Colin Higgins kind of, uh, you know, he said his heart really wasn't in it. I think it's hard to, I mean, just because it's successful, it's hard to find the right story. And, uh, you know, I know studios definitely always push for more money, but, uh, you know, the people, the creatives behind it couldn't make it uh, work. And over time, uh, Fonda, Tomlin, and Parton have all since expressed interest in a sequel. And, uh, you know, it started being something that they were talking about more and more. And uh, I think that um, just a couple years ago, it was pretty, you know, they were doing it. And I think they were going to call it 24-7, where these three would return. They were mentors for a new group of women. Um, Rashida Jones and Pat Resnick were attached to write it. And then uh, just last year, Dolly Parton said it's been dropped. So I don't know what happened with all that. But it it does feel like something that, you know, I mean, as as you said, right out of the gate, it feels very relevant today still. And so um, I don't know why why we couldn't see one. But yeah, it's it's tricky with the trying to get all of them to do it. And uh, it could be, you know, Tomlin and Fonda have their TV show. Maybe they're just tied up in that right now. Uh, who knows? And, uh, but Dolly Parton did do a musical, uh, 2009, on Broadway. Um, it was uh, it w- never really took off. And um, I think it just kind of closed on Broadway and then just started its national tour, which I think it's still doing. I, I think it's actually in just last year. I think it opened in uh, uh, the West End. So. Um, uh, and then of course, I mean, we didn't even mention the TV series, the, but there was a TV series that ran for, um, you know, I think, uh, three seasons and, you know, it was, uh, received pretty well at the time. So how did it do at award season? I feel like this is a film now looking at it. I'm like, this was a really relevant film and it just is really funny. I just don't know because of the comedy, if people might not have recognized it as well at the time, but it feels like something that should have gotten more award recognition than it did. It had three wins, seven other nominations. At the Oscars, it did get nominated for Best Song. However, it lost to the song Fame from the movie Fame, which, uh, you know, is a pretty popular one. And like the song says, it's going to live forever. So that was, I see what you did there. You see what I did? Um, this was also the year that Willie Nelson's On the Road Again uh, from the movie Honeysuckle Rose was nominated. So, I mean, these three songs, Fame, On the Road Again, and 9 to 5, I'm like, those are three really iconic songs to kind of come out and have to battle each other. The other two, <laughs> I, I dare you to sing a bar from um, Out Here on My Own, also from Fame, and People Alone from the competition. I... <laughs> That's what I thought. Out here on my own. (laughs) No, that's all by myself. Damn. (laughs) Um, Over at the Golden Globes, Dolly Parton did get nominated for Best Actress in a Musical or Comedy, but lost to Sissy Spacek playing a country star, Coal Miner's Daughter. And uh, Dolly Parton did get nominated for Best New Female Star of the Year uh, in a motion picture, but lost to Natasha Kinski from Tess. And the song was nominated again, but also lost to fame there. As you mentioned, the song did win Best Country Song at the Grammys. Dolly did win Best Female Country Vocal Performance. It did get nominated for Best Score, but lost to Raiders of the Lost Ark. And it did get nominated for Song of the Year, but lost to Betty Davis Eyes. 
The movie, however, this might reflect it a little bit more. It did uh, the song win at the People's Choice Awards. And uh, over the WGA, Colin Higgins and uh, Patricia uh, uh, Resnick did get nominated for Best Comedy written directly for the screen, but they lost to Private Benjamin. It, that Private Benjamin's a pretty good film. It is a good movie. It is a good movie. Yeah, it's been a long time. I haven't seen it in a long time to know, uh, to be able to say how well it compares, but tonight, um, boy, it did doesn't. I love it at the Let time. Let me just say that. Tonight, <laughs> it does not compare. Here, here. Uh, okay, Andy, we got to talk about the numbers. How to do it do with the box office? Did it clean up? Did it clean up? Tell me it cleaned up for old Colin. For Colin's second film as writer-director, his budget doubled what he had last time, lending him with $10 million to play with. That is about $31.1 million in today's dollars. The movie opened December 19, 1980 on a busy holiday weekend opposite Any Which Way You Can, the re-release of The Aristocats, The Formula, The Jazz Singer, Inside Moves, and Seems Like Old Times. This film opened in second place behind Eastwood's orangutan comedy sequel, but this film is the one that held on at the box office, eventually becoming the second highest grossing film of 1980, just behind a little movie called The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, when I say just behind, I mean that this film is second, even though Empire made more than twice what this did at the <laughs> box office. <laughs> Uh, this film did end up earning $103.3 million, which is about $321.2 million in today's dollars. That is a pretty penny for this movie and gives it an adjusted profit per finished minute of $2.6 million. Another win for Higgins. You are quite the budgetary relativist, Andy. <laughs> it's first, second. Just, just behind. It's all in the scale. It's all relative. Well, I thought this movie was uh, a fantastic watch. I, I had a brilliant time with it. It lived up to every bit of uh, my memory of it. And uh, I'm thrilled to hear it sounds like it did just about the same to you. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a, a comedy classic that I had not watched and need to watch more often. Yeah. Just fantastic. Yeah. Did you watch it with your kids? Did you share it with your daughter? Nope. I knew there was uh, the the pot stuff in here, and I was like, I'm not quite ready to hmm. jump into that yet. So uh, I haven't yet, but I, I immediately walked up to my wife and I said, we have to do this. We we have to watch it with as a family because it it's just there are so many things in here that I just I, I feel like I want my kids to see because they're dated and to see what they they're <laughs> never going to experience some of yeah. these situations. Right. So yeah. um, even the fact that most of these people are called secretaries and I'm like, yes, the, like they're not secretaries. Like it's not a thing. This anymore. is a role. No, this is like accountants or other people working in the office. It's interesting. That to me was really interesting that just blanket all the women are called secretaries. That's right. That's right. Fascinating. Well, I think we got to take it to the mat, Andy. Let's do Head it. Over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. If you swipe over in the show notes and tap the word flick chart, it will take you straight to this movie in the flick chart catalog where you can add it to your own list and see how it stands up against ours. First up, we have 9 to 5, or, you know, Pete, one of my favorite David Cronenberg movies now, <laughs> Scanners. <laughs> there is no way you can justify 
<laughs> picking scanners in this matchup. There is no conceivable way. It will so dramatically shake my worldview, my ideological perspective of you and your existence in time and space if you pick freaking scanners. <laughs> like you picking 2001 over anything that you picked. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> That was then, But Andy. I will pick 9 to 5. There I will go. pick 9 to 5. Live in the now, Andy. I will... <laughs> Absolutely 9 to 5. I love scanners, but 9 to 5. Okay, I'm that, scanners. This is a classic song. 9 to 5 or Dead Ringers? <laughs> still, not, still 9 to 5. <laughs> you were saying? Dead Ringers? <laughs> yes, 9 to 5 or Dead Ringers. Yeah, no, I'm definitely uh, Dead Ringers on this one. You're Dead Ringers? Psych! No, I'm totally yeah. 9 to 5. What are you kidding? Yeah. You knew. lunatic. You're you're a stinker. 9 to 5 or Creed. Oh, that's trouble area for me. Hmm. I'm on the fence. Honestly, I, I could be pushed. I, Go ahead and I'm push on me and let's see if I feel good about it. I'm on the fence too. I feel like I'm going to say 9 to 5. I don't know if it's recency, but... Um, I think both of these are exceptional films. I do too. I so what I was waiting for is to see if it would make me do the Nick Nolte wiggle from Hulk, and it didn't. <laughs> I feel good. I let's. I would. I would go nine to five. I feel good about that. Smart. Okay, film. nine to five. Mm-hmm. Nine to five or another Colin Higgins film, Harold and Maude. Harold and Maude. Sorry, I do have to put Harold and Maude here. Nine to five or the 2018 Bradley Cooper. Lady Gaga, A Star is Born. A Star is Born, please. A Star is Born. 9 to 5 or Menace to Society from the Hughes Brothers. Menace to Society, please. 9 to 5 from me. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. You know what? I would be okay with that, but I want to take it to the mat just in case. Okay. Let's do right. it. Oh, Here we go. One. One. Two. two three. three. Scissors. For Daniels. 9 to 5 crushes. Your menace to society. I'm okay scissors. with that, but I really am disappointed that I've had one win in like six weeks. <laughs> maybe more, maybe 10. I don't know what's going on. And of course, we can't get 2001 to come back up in our <laughs> yeah, Saturday It's fine. Don't remakes. worry about it. <laughs> Nine to five or stand by me. Oh, yeesh. stand by me. Stand by me. Nine to five or delicatessen. Hmm. I do like that delicatessen, but I'm going to go nine to five. I feel like I'm going to say delicatessen, but I'm okay. I was just going to say the other thing. I was going to say, okay, you can have it. And you know why? It's because I started thinking of the of the bed. <laughs> We're being way too flip flopping. <laughs> what is going on? <laughs> That's what went, won me over. You said delicatessen. It took a minute for that to come back, but I'm going to go with that. Delicatessen. You're go with that. Yeah, unless you change your mind. I I am in nine to five now. You we are? both changed our minds. Yes. Oh, for crying out loud! <laughs> okay, I'm going to change my mind back. I, Don't I think move. it's because the. <laughs> well, now, now, I mean, now I'm thinking of like the boomerang <laughs> knife thing. It's so good. I am going to stick with delicatessen now. All right, I will too. Okay. You, you I, before I change it, my mind again. Oh, God, I'll tell you, we're right. the delicatessen worst. takes that one. Nine to five or aliens, aliens for me. Aliens. That was a brutal battle <laughs> that didn't need to be. It was totally worthless. That's <laughs> what that was. That whole segment. Putting, 
<laughs> putting nine to five in spot 47. This, you it guys. It would have been fitting if it was spot 95. I'm telling you, this is uh, why we put chapters in our show. <laughs> you can skip <laughs> right by this. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. Say that again. It's 47. 47. 47 out of 435. Right. Uh, so that's at an 89% on our chart. All right. That's not so bad. Not so bad at all. Got to do on your personal chart. This uh, definitely shot up there. Uh, and I would say it's a new comedy favorite. I think that it's just super smart and a lot of fun. It ended up in spot 250 out of 4276 on my chart, which is a 94%. Ooh, that's really good. Really good. Um, I'm stalling for a minute because I haven't ranked it yet. <laughs> <laughs> it just never hit my chart. How about that, oh, Dolly? God, telling you. <laughs> So while you're ranking, something else that something else that I I have to point out that is that happens in this film that I forgot how much I love, and I don't know if it happens that much in films today, and, and maybe it does, but I I feel like it's a trope. I don't know that maybe began in the '70s of putting fake end uh, supers yes. as to where are they now at the end of movies. And I know we've talked about this with some other movies on our show. I just can't remember what they are. But I have always loved that when movies give you that little fake, you know, what's happening now mm -hmm. bit. It's just, it's cute. It's it's simple. It's fun. And especially in comedies like this, it's a great way to kind of just have last little laughs. I, and it worked well I here. wonder if there's, if there's a connection between movies that have those those final title cards and uh, sequels, because I like to think in my head when I see those final title cards that this movie is done. This is the end of the experience. I get to just enjoy it and I don't need to see a sequel. I wonder how many movies have yeah. sequels that have these title cards. My hunch is it's a small number. Well, uh, but it's it's almost like they have closed the chapter because like because then you'd have to do the the sequel but it would still have to be based kind of on that information, which is future information not related to your movie. Like, if they bring Dabney Coleman back, did he survive getting kidnapped by the Amazonian tribe? You know, how, like, yeah. it, it ends up kind of putting them in a bit more of a pickle for the sequel. Yeah. Well, hmm. on that note, I will tell you, my rating of my ranking of uh, this very film came out at 80 out of 1430, which is a 94%. I like so that's it. pretty good too, huh? 94%? Yeah. So we're both at 94%. That's right. So I did good that's and crazy. you did good. We both did good. <laughs> we both did good. So now if I'm going to go by the <laughs> so, algorithm. that's So <laughs> you and I, Dimitri. <laughs> so you're fine and I'm fine. So I guess you'd say we're both fine. <laughs> there are four Lugas. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if oh, we're, we're going by the algorithm, the then this tonight. this show should get this film should get a four and a half star uh, over at letterbox.com slash the next reel. Uh, I'm going to throw caution to the wind, Andy. For me, this is a five star movie. It's five stars, and it's actually not a heart. It's a cow heart with like six chambers. It's the heart wow. of a bison. It's the heart that is so strong that scientists can actually put open it up on the side of a cow and watch food being digested. It's in the stomach. That's what it is. They can watch blood coursing through it. Uh, it's so strong. That's a big heart. Yeah, I mean, you know, a cow's four chambered heart, just like just like, it's like that. six chambered heart is what cows is what cows have. I'm sure. 
Maybe eight. I've I heard like as high as eight. How many, how many stomachs? I think that I think cows are like computers, the computer cores. You could just upgrade them. Just it actually has 12. I want a 12-core cow. Oh, cows have four stomachs. Maybe that's where you're thinking of that expansion of I cow numbers. I guarantee you that I was thinking of stomachs and used heart because of stupid letterboxed. And now what I would like to tell you is this is a five-star four-chambered stomach. <laughs> Off the rails, folks. That's where we are. We are the Golden Globes <laughs> of movie here. podcasts, everybody. <laughs> oh, man. Well, this is a five-star... <laughs> And a four-chambered <laughs> stomach. Four-chambered stomach uh, from me as well. I right. love this movie and absolutely want to add this to my watch uh, more often list and definitely watch it with my wife, introduce my kids to it, make everybody watch this because it's so good. <laughs> That's great. That's great. <laughs> I can't wait. We're going to watch this and Room back-to-back because I want it to be very meta because I'll be locking them in a tough shit to do it. <laughs> Jeez. All right. What are we doing next time? All right, everybody. So next uh, next week, we are finishing our, our Colin Higgins series, sadly, because uh, he passed away um, a little while after finishing this last film, which is another uh, Dolly Parton film. Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds in The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Oh, Andy, you haven't seen this either. I've started. Oh. I've started watching it. Okay. I have not finished it, but... Uh, I'm uh, I'm enjoying it so Just far. Just tell me. Looking forward to. Ch- have you chuckled yet? I've chuckled and I've uh, I've been enjoying it. Good. Yeah. All right. That's possible. I wasn't it's... expecting Burt Reynolds to sing, but there it was. It's in there. It is. Yeah. It certainly is. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm very excited about that one. That's going to be great. And uh, as I think you know, Andy, when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Amazon uh, doeth again. Uh, this time, uh, I did, was not able to go to a one star. I went to a two star. I tried to go to the oh. very bottom, and then I went to a two star anyway. <laughs> do you want to climb up, or do you want me to sink you? I will sink, uh, I will sink let's, you. Let, let's sink it. All right. Uh, nine to five. Enough time to kidnap, torture, and blackmail while making coffee. Two star from 2017. <laughs> the first time I watched it, I cringed. The second time, which was 20 some years later, I was astounded. Although I have always enjoyed Dolly Parton, withstood Jane Fonda and Edith Ann. The premise of this story is, well, extremely violent and not really funny at all. Three women who couldn't figure out any other way to improve their careers than to torture their boss. Kind of like the Dixie Chicks. Earl had to die. Justification. I had to die. (laughs) (laughs) Earl had to die. (laughs) I imagine Werner listens to a lot of Dixie Chicks, is the thing. (laughs) I feel like he I think he's big on Dixie Chicks. And early Dolly Dolly Parton. Probably some Tanya Tucker. (laughs) 
<clears throat> you were saying? He probably li- is listening to her uh, while he's doing his casting, going, oh, yeah. I should cast her. I should totally cast Dolly Parton. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as I finish this Mandalorian <laughs> BS. <laughs> With his puppet. <laughs> Cowards. Oh, <laughs> what do you got? All right. Well, I've got uh, a one star. I went down and uh, I have Taiman Luger uh, is the person who said one star. Do not recommend. I know this is a movie from the 70s, but I was cringing throughout the entire movie. Men back then were beyond sexist. Ugh. Do not recommend. <laughs> The comments, yeah. of course. You, your review would make sense if the sexist man was the hero of the movie. But since he is clearly the antagonist, I'm wondering how far into the movie you watched. And then the next person said, um, that's the point of the movie. <laughs> and then the third person said, LOL, to that person. Perfect post. LOL, LOL, OL, OL. So many OLs. Ah. <laughs> that's the Maluga of Amazon <laughs> Full circle. (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. (laughs) I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.